And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I am thrilled with the response that we got to the uh, podcast that, and, and video that uh, Chris and I uh, made last week. Uh, we covered 16 questions that were left over unanswered uh, during his presentation to the Orange County chapter of AAII. Uh, One of the responses was that uh, whoever had watched the video said it was as educational uh, as uh, Chris's presentation, and that's what we're after. And it may may be that these Q&A sessions are some of the more valuable work that we do in in helping lots of investors. Well, today I'm taking on 20 questions. I'm here without Chris because he's traveling and and we've we've got to keep getting these done. I think we've got uh, um, probably about 50 more questions to go, but I'm going to do 20 today. And and I'm going to start uh, with one that that uh, has to do with balanced funds. I want to start with this one uh, because Rich Buck and I just uh, are in the, the, the final hours of completing a new article uh, for uh, Market Watch, and it's going to be focused on the Wellington and Wellesley balanced funds. And the question that was posed uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the chapter meeting was, how do you feel about a balanced fund such as Vanguard Wellington in retirement. Uh, and, and in this article, we just focus on two funds, but here uh, I've got the, uh, the bandwidth to go a little deeper. Uh, I'm a great fan of the Wellington and the Wellesley funds, uh, basically Wellington being a 60-40 stocks and bonds, and Wellesley being a 40-60 stocks and bonds. The equity portion in the Wellington is more growth-oriented as compared to the Wellesley being more value-oriented in the equity portion. And this is important because it gives uh, some diversification uh, in the combination of the two. Now, it does mean that if you were to combine the Wellington and the Wellesley and uh, 50-50, you would have a portfolio that is basically half in stocks and half in bonds. Now, it's going to move away from that from time to time because uh, there is an active management aspect of of these uh, two funds. I like them. Uh, because they have a very long track record. And over the years, particularly when I lived in uh, part of the year in San Miguel de Allende, I met a lot of widows uh, who wanted to be able to invest in mutual funds, had really no idea how to do it, wanted to do something uh, that was uh, represented a little bit of growth, but not too much growth, because they had limited uh, uh, risk tolerance. And the thing I liked about Wellington and Wellesley, Wellington's been around since, I think, 1929, and Wellesley's been around since 1970. 
So you can literally look at all of the losing years they've had, uh, and and uh, and then you can even look if you want to take the time and and combine them. You can determine what was the average loss over those losing years, and they're between 1970 and 2022. Uh, I think there were about nine losses. Uh, if you combine the two of them, and the average loss was around 5.6%. That's, you know, that's not much when you compare that to the market, but it's also fair to say that, uh, that these are much more conservative because if you combined them, you'd have half of your money in bonds. But by combining them, and I think this is important, over that period of time, the compound rate of return, the average, was 7.4%. And I can just tell you from having been around a lot of people in retirement over my, what, six, almost 60 years uh, around the investment community, uh, 7.4%, uh, I won't call it a home run, but it's a very fine return uh, in, in, in terms of... Uh, uh, having a defensive strategy that is trying to pick up a fair amount of the growth, remembering that the S&P 500 over that period uh, compounded at a little less than, uh, I think, 10%. Now, we can go beyond that. Uh, in fact, uh, in the video, which has been our best opened and watched video uh, of the bunch, it's uh, my favorite 12 Vanguard funds for retirees. Uh, we talk about Wellesley and 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 Wellington, but there are some reasons why, particularly for taxable accounts, that you would want to consider. Uh, let's say you wanted to have a fifty-fifty strategy. Uh, if you wanted to use one fund at Vanguard, that would be a 50-50 stocks and bonds, you would use, consider, again, for a taxable account, the Vanguard Tax Managed uh, uh, Index Fund. Now, that fund, and by the way, this the ticker symbol is V as in Vanguard, T as in Tom, M as in Mary, uh, E, X, now, what do we know about that fund that's different than the 50-50 combination with Wellington and Wellesley? Well, the first thing is you're going to cut your expenses by about 50%. So, so that's, that's a benefit. Instead of paying somewhere around 17, 18 basis points uh, for, a, this is for a $3,000 account, uh, the, the expense ratio uh, for the tax-managed fund is 0 0.08. But there's more. Uh, the big difference is that the tax-managed fund uh, is, and this is the tax-managed balance fund, is uh, 0.56 tax costs. So over the last three years, if you look at Morningstar, uh, and you look at the price, um, in, when you look at a mutual fund, 
you can go to the price page, and on the price page, they will show you the last three years' tax costs. So if you had a return, and I didn't write down the return, but if you had a return of of 8% a year, you would actually, if you were in a taxable environment, you would have to reduce that by 0.56, which would be about a, about a half of 1%. On the other hand, if you invested in the, uh, the Wellesley and the Wellington Fund, uh, the, uh, tax, the tax cost is, is really much higher. Uh, in the case of Wellesley, it's 1.74%. And in the case of Wellington, it is 2.09%. And so if it too had uh, an 8% return, you would have to take off close to 2% of the return that you would have lost to taxes. Now, when they compute that, it's based on the highest tax rate uh, for the uh, for the IRS code. So, if you're not in a higher tax bracket, the impact would be lower than this, but it would still be a much bigger impact with Wellington and Wellesley. Now, when we look at the Wellington and Wellesley together over the whole period, that compound rate of return is 7.4%. With the tax managed, the balance tax managed, it's 7.3%. So a slightly lower before-tax return uh, with the, uh, the, the tax managed fund. But there's more to it than that. It's also that the balanced fund uh, has a very different portfolio. It is, yes, it is 50-50, but it has a lot more uh, diversification uh, than uh, with the Wellesley and the Wellington. The Vanguard Tax Manager has got about 900 stocks in the portfolio uh, versus, uh, um, I think, probably between the, the Wellesley and the Wellington, there's there's less than 200 companies together. So that would be a consideration for somebody who wanted to be 50-50. Now, if you wanted to be 60-40, then instead of the Wellington Fund, you could consider the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. Okay? And the Balanced Index Fund is 60-40. It has 3,400 companies in the portfolio versus, I believe, uh, around 80 uh, in Wellington. So the, the the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund, similar combination equity fixed income, but more diversification uh, in, in the uh, in the in, in the Vanguard uh, Balanced Fund, and both the Balanced Fund and Wellington are more growth oriented. Uh, and also that you would you were going to find in the and I forgot to mention this the return in the tax managed fund one of the reasons the tax cost is lower is because it's it owns municipal bonds 
instead of owning the corporate bonds, which in the balanced index fund does use the corporate or the taxable bonds. The return for the balanced index fund was for the looking back to to uh, uh, to uh, as far as we, I think in 1970 was 7.9 percent versus Wellington at 8.2, so a slightly higher return with Wellington, but uh, a, a huge uh, difference. Uh, as a matter of fact, with the balanced fund, there's about a 0.9 percent loss versus the Wellington of 2.09. So uh, considerably more taxes to pay uh, with uh, Wellington than the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. Uh, so there, there's just a little more information. I hope you'll get to, uh, take the time to, to uh, read the article when it comes out uh, at MarketWatch. Uh, we'll certainly have that noted in our newsletter after it comes out. Um, but this is the beauty of Vanguard. There are so many ways you can slice and dice that depend on your willingness to take risk, your, your, your willingness to try to manage the tax implications uh, of a mutual fund. And by the way, you would even, if you dig deep, what you would see with the tax-managed fund, that it has no unrealized capital gains which with the other funds, they, they all have uh, unrealized capital gains. Uh, I do look forward to the day that Chris and I sit down and give you the best tutorial that we can, at least on how we look at Morningstar. Stay tuned. We will do that. Okay, back to this long list of questions. Number two, I subscribe to your belief in index funds, keeping costs low, buy and hold, etc. Is Merriman Wealth Management your company as well? I ask because that company espouses market timing and charges AUM fees. That AUM is assets under management. Well, I'm, I, I, was, I was guilty of that. As a matter of fact, I started at the Merriman it was it was Paul Merriman and Associates way back in 1983, but eventually it became Merriman Wealth Management, and 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 in 2012 I sold uh, my ownership in that company, uh, and and a company called Focus Financial uh, Partners. Um, the company became part of that organization which is an organization of, I think, uh, I, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 different investment management companies with a total of, uh, I think, over $80 billion under management. So when I sold the company, I took a portion of what I got and I established the Merriman Financial Education Foundation. And, uh, and so I, the reason I... I didn't want to continue being part of the company when I sold because I could have. I could have maintained a portion of my stock, but I, I really did not want to have a conflict of interest with the company. I have told people, uh, I, most people know 
that I am a Merriman Wealth Management fan, and I say that because that's where my wife and I have our money uh, managed. But having said that, what is, uh, I think, a very big difference is at the Merriman Wealth Management Company, they manage money for people who believe in buy and hold, do not believe in market timing. And they are dedicated from everything I know uh, in the buy and hold portion to using index funds or index-like passively types of, of mutual funds. Um, and, and in another part of their business, uh, and this is because of the work that I did in the early days uh, of the company, uh, I have a long history of, of, of knowledge going back to the 1960s about market timing. And I found a lot of people who had little trust of the stock market. Uh, if, if you said, look, a good way to address that is to simply have, uh, if you're afraid of the risk of the stock market, have enough fixed income in the portfolio that when the market goes down, your portfolio is not going to go down as much as the market. Now, in theory, that works because the, the literally the standard deviation of a 50-50 buy and hold stocks and bonds and a 70-30 market timing, 70% equity, 30% fixed income, it's about the same standard deviation and the returns over a long period of time are not great. Of course, the problem with the market timing, uh, even if you get the same return, you're going to have a higher tax impact with market timing. But while taxes are important, I can tell you my experience. You can tell somebody who's nervous about taking equity into their portfolio that if they have half the money in fixed income or 40% or whatever it is that meets your particular exposure to comfort in terms of loss when the market goes down, you can tell them that they should be peaceful and be willing to stay the course. But I can tell you a lot of people, when the market goes down, even though they've only got half of their money in equities or 40% or 30%, they see that portion of the market going down, and without some sort of a defense, their their risk is they're gonna they're gonna sell at exactly the wrong time. And you can say, well, why don't they get an education? Why don't they understand how buy and hold works over the long term, and that you have to be willing to lose substantial amounts of money in order to get the reward of buy and hold. But I can just tell you that that what we call the ICSIA, I can't stand it anymore, market timing system, gets people in trouble every time they go through, almost every time they go through some sort of a panic sell. And there are studies that show that, that most people do that, not everybody. And maybe I shouldn't even say most but certainly a lot. So my hope for people when I was in the business was to figure out who are you as an investor? Will you stay the course? Will you stay with index funds? 
There are people who don't run index funds because they want to beat the market. And you can say, well, the odds aren't very good that's going to happen. It might happen. But that's what they're most comfortable with. And what we found, and I, I, really, I, I really loved this aspect of finding a way to get a decent return and more peace of mind. We convinced a lot of people, look, try the buy and hold. Do it with part of your portfolio. Then do the other part with market timing. And find out where your comfort is. Now, I'll tell you what we had to fight with in that regard. We had to fight with the, uh, with the reality that people would judge over the last year if market timing was better than buy and hold. They would think that they want to be in, in, in market timing in the future. If buy and hold was better, they wanted to be in buy and hold. This is one of the reasons that having a professional manager for a lot of people is really important. And that includes me. I have a manager to take care of. Uh, and my wife, we have, a, we have somebody who takes care of us. Why? Because I am one of those poor souls that when whatever portion of my portfolio is buy and hold, I just have a devil of a time in just sitting there and watching it evaporate. Now, I can tell you, once I turn that over to somebody else, it gets done exactly as it is supposed to. And I realize that with half of my money in market timing, personally, and not all equity, 70, I'm sorry, let's see, 70, 30 equity fixed income with a market timing portion, I, I, I realize I, I would not maintain that market timing system the way it's supposed to be maintained because I would start to second guess. That is the problem for a lot of us investors. We have a tendency to second guess. But there is no second guessing in the buy and hold part of my portfolio or the market timing portfolio. And by the way, it then means that I'm turning to somebody whose job it is to take care of that money. And I will tell you, I'm likely to die. I'm a few years older than my wife and not as in as good a health as she is. And I'm likely to go sooner. I really feel a great sense of peace about there's somebody to be there to take, take it over when I'm gone. But when it comes to what we teach, at the Merriman Financial Education Foundation, we tell people not to market time. We tell people if you're a do-it-yourself investor, which is what, what we're here to do is to help do-it-yourself investors primarily, we do believe that buy and hold is the best solution. Because I'm going to assume if you tried to use market timing, you would run into the same kind of problems I run into. Number three, as a beginning retiree of age 65, I decide on two funds for life with 10% small cap value. Would you split the 10% small cap value between U.S. and international? I seem to remember you saying size and value being more important than location, and that is absolutely right. 
that when we look at the studies, and I will, I'm sure, before these uh, uh, 20 questions are done, I am sure I'm going to mention Table H2, the Sound Investing Portfolios Comparison Data uh, Portfolio, uh, that does, in fact, show the compound rate of return going back to 1970 of 10%, I mean, of small cap value, half in U.S., half in international. And the difference is uh, one-tenth of one percent, which means it's a random event at that point. Uh, I, I will say that there'll be years that you'll do better with the combination because there are years international and did, in fact, better uh, than U.S. But yes, it's the size and the, and, the, and the value orientation that is going to give you the kick, not whether it's U.S. or international, at least based on the past. I have no idea what the, what the future will bring. But I do know this. I know that small cap growth over long periods of time, both U.S. and international, produce lower rates of return than small cap value. Small cap growth makes less than small cap value, both U.S. and international. And I also know in the large cap arena that uh, large cap growth makes less than large cap value. And that's true both in U.S. and international. Now, that doesn't mean, and this is so important, that does not mean that you won't go through a 20-year period that all of those numbers are reversed. And large does beat small, and, 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 and growth does beat value. Because I also know that for a 20-year period, you can have bonds beat stocks. Doesn't happen very often, the stocks versus bonds, but it does. And that's the thing about investing is we really don't know for what is considered statistically a short period of time what you're going to get out of the next 10 to 20 years. Number four, is it too late for someone just entering retirement to change their investment portfolio to a 10-fund Paul Merriman model? Is there still time for me to take advantage of this diversification? Well, in a sense, it's never too late. Remember that the difference between somebody at age 30 who is going to use the 10-fund equity model, they're likely not going to have any fixed income in along with the 10 funds. On the other hand, if, if you're almost 80, as I am, then you're going to have a lot of bonds in the portfolio, which means then you still have the same question, what do you do with the equities? And so I would certainly recommend that for the, to the extent that a person wants to put up with all the work that's required for a 10-fund strategy, that that could be just as good as as the uh, uh, putting the money in the 
S&P 500. In fact, here's what we know. I, I, I'm going to look at table H2. I can see that from 1970 to 79, the S&P 500 compounded at 5.8. Now, you might not have your whole portfolio in it, but that's what you got for whatever amount you had in the portfolio, while the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy compounded at 13.3. But the 4-fund, not the 10-fund, but the 4-fund worldwide strategy that we recommend, and we recommend the, the stocks to, 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 to use to do it, compounded over that same period at 13.4. Now, from 80 to 89, the S&P compounds at 17.5 versus the other two at about 22. From 90 to 99, the S&P 500 compounds at 18.2, but the ultimate buy and hold at 10.1 and the forefund strategy at 10.4. All I'm saying is, that that the four fund strategy looks ever so much like the 10. And the reason that's so is because it is a more focused approach to small and value and and, and large and, and and blend. But it picks up the the, the, the good returns that made the ultimate buy and hold or the four fund strategy better than the S&P 500 because sometimes international does better, sometimes value does better. You know, you don't, and small, and small does better. So I'm saying that it is legitimate to have the S&P 500, the 10 fund ultimate buy and hold, the four fund worldwide or others in your portfolio. The real question is, how much bonds to go along with it. Number five, you mentioned Vanguard. What is your impression of a recent study showing that a large percentage of Vanguard investors who are retirees over 85 with an asset allocation of 100% in stocks? Now, I didn't actually read that study, but after I got this question, I found the study, and as a matter of fact, we'll have a link to that study. It's 110 pages of really interesting reading, How America Saves. Now, I just, I, I just want you to know that I have a question whether it's, the answer is, is, uh, is totally right, because the study shows that uh, about, I believe it's about 10%, it's a, it's a big number uh, of uh, people over uh, 85. I don't actually remember the over 85 number, but uh, it kind of depends on the time period. But 5 to 10% of people are equities, according to Vanguard, their whole life. And by the way, <laughs> we've run the numbers. It was a brilliant move. Now, it was a brilliant move until you run into a period like 1929 to 1932. And if what you base your judgments on in building your portfolio are what happened since 1970, you're probably A-OK. -okay. 
But to be 85 and have the equity part of your portfolio go down 80%, and by the way, even in 2000 through 2002, if that all-equity portfolio was technology-based, you were likely down 80%. Now, let me tell you why this study may not be exactly right. I assume that Vanguard is looking at what, what they see, what they know about these people. And uh, what they may not know about these people, it may be that these people, like some friends of mine, who are all equities, get a pension. They both get a pension. They both get Social Security. They both get a, another pension from the government. They don't need any of their investments to live on. And so they have chosen, they have chosen to take the all-equity approach because they don't need it to live on, and it's there for their kids to grow for after they're gone. The other thing they might not know is that they may have fixed income securities somewhere else in their life. I've met people uh, where, when I was in the money management business, we would hold an all-equity portfolio, but it was, it was a dumbbell portfolio because we held the equity portion, but they kept a huge amount of money in money market funds or short-term bond funds and weren't going to pay us anything. In fact, if you got a money market fund, you're paying very, very little to have it managed. And money market funds have a very similar return to T-bills. And, and there are some portfolios that advocate a combination of T-bills and equities. So it may be that some of these people who look like they're all uh, uh, equity actually have something else in their life that is, is bond-like. Number six, what are your thoughts Instead of a small cap ETF, replace that with a technology ETF. I, I think that is a great question. And to answer that, I guess I have to, to, to ask how people feel about the downside. Technology, for example is going to have a higher loss under, well, I can't even say under the worst of conditions because small cap value uh, fell over 90% uh, when they do the studies of small cap value stocks going back to 1929. But, but the S&P 500 fell 83% during that period of time. So they, they, were, they were both horrible. But here's what we know about technology. Technology has these periods, long periods, of what are relatively mediocre returns, or let's say mediocre compared to the risk that is taken to get that return. And, and, and so from uh, 81 to about 97 uh, was a period that uh, technology uh, had a had a liftoff and made um, uh, twice as much 
as uh, as in the uh, uh, as the S and P five hundred. On the other hand, it then fell, and 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 by the uh, end of two thousand two, the return from eighty one to two thousand two was the same. And the same thing has happened uh, again. You had the you had the, then after they it fell and they were neck and neck for a number of years, and then from two thousand eight to two thousand twenty two, you have another blast off for technology. Now, right now, technology is way above the S and P five hundred over this whole period of time, way. But it was there before, and then it fell down until it was the same as the S&P 500. So this is also a challenge with small cap value. It has long periods of similar returns, and then it blasts off. And we've shown that. Uh, In fact, I'll have a link uh, that shows the telltale chart. If you haven't seen... Uh, the telltale chart, uh, then uh, you, you, you really don't have enough information about small cap value. But here's the return of the Fidelity uh, Technology Fund. It, it, it goes uh, back to 1981, I believe. Uh, and its compound rate of return, 138 Small cap value, 14.6. S&P 500, 11.3. So it looks to me like you could probably, if you wanted to, if you wanted to to get a high flyer in there that might do better from time to time and you rebalance, maybe you could do a small cap value slash technology uh, portfolio and rebalance between the two and have that be the rocket in your portfolio. But right now, I can tell you, the the return of technology uh, suggests, based on history, based on history, that it has a lot of room to the downside uh, and uh, that one of these days, more than likely, the S&P 500, and uh, technology will meet again on the long trip up. Remembering that in that telltale chart, and if you don't know about it, you wouldn't remember this, but since 1928, the return of small cap value compared to the S&P 500 is a multiple of around 13 times. So if you ended up with 100000 on your investment since 1928, you would have a million three uh, in the small cap value. Number seven, what are some short-term bonds that you recommend? Well, remembering that we recommend bonds for different reasons. If we are recommending a bond as a part of a portfolio that is there to stabilize the portfolio during major equity market declines, we would use a short-term government, in the case of Vanguard, uh, VS, 
BSX. We'll we'll have these. We'll have these uh, in the uh, in the note field. And then for tax exempt, again, um, for stabilization, uh, we would use the limited tax exempt money market fund. Uh, and for the um, taxable short term, what my wife and I use for purposes of uh, having that money there uh, for our annual income. And we, at the first of each year, we put money into uh, an account in a short-term corporate bond fund to draw monthly from, knowing that some years we're going to uh, uh, do uh, better uh, in the short-term bond fund, other years less. I know over the last 10 years, uh, the short-term bond fund 1.76 versus the government 0.7. So that's there. there are three bonds that we recommend for different purposes. Number eight, I'm 25 years old and I have a high risk tolerance. Does your research indicate that it would be best to go all in on small cap value? Would it be okay to invest 10% in some individual small cap value company? I'm thinking inside my Roth with the individual stocks. So he is talking about more than one stock. Let me tell you what the academics tell us about value, both small and large. That there, yes, there is this meaningful premium for these companies. And you, if you start a, a five-year period and you looked at a, the whole list of small-cap value companies, companies that for whatever reason are out of favor, that five years out, about half of them will have done really well. And the other half are still value companies. So they, what they say is don't buy the individual stocks. The premium, historically, is so high that you don't want to take the chance of having your one or two or three, however many you're going to buy, there is this much higher probability that you're going to be in the lower 50% and in the upper 50%. But I understand the excitement and the fun of investing in individual stocks. I do not have one individual stock in, in my portfolio. Having said that, yes, I have lots of ETFs, and those are individual stocks. But they are just, they represent diversified portfolios. Number nine, I have invested for the last 10 years using the 10 fund buy and hold and rebalancing every year. I would like to make this easier. Would it make sense to use the four fund worldwide and move the money into four funds instead of 10? And the answer is absolutely. And I, and, and I, and I, and I, I have to agree with almost every expert that the best strategy, portfolio, that you can find is one that has a history of success and one that you will maintain. So if what you will maintain is four funds instead of ten, go to it. 
As a matter of fact, if you look at that H1, H2 table, uh, that, that, again, we'll have that link. Um, you will note that if you wanted to own um, four or five funds, you could look at an all-value fund. Now, by the way, that is not the equivalent of the 10 fund, but it is another broadly diversified portfolio that I think some people will look at, particularly if you look carefully in that table at the risk of these different combinations. But I do believe that that it is okay to go to the four fund worldwide instead of wrestling with 10. Number 10, I am retired and just took a full distribution from 401k and invested the cash in a Vanguard rollover IRA. Um, I'm investing with the Merriman strategy. Do I stage my investment or do it all immediately? Well, I've got another one of those coming along here, a question that's similar. But but here's the thing that I would need to know if I were your advisor. Have you taken your money from your 401k? And when it was in that 401k, was it all equities? Was it uh, 50-50? Because from my viewpoint, uh, if you have been in the market with a with some sort of a balance of stocks and bonds, I would think you would just roll it over into your, your, your new IRA where you can apply the strategy, but I would just go back to where you were from, from what you were comfortable with uh, within the 401k. On the other hand, if you had been sitting in your 401k all in cash because you're a market timer, or you acted like one in the past, then I'm really worried about you doing anything very aggressive because 10 funds, four funds, two funds, if they're equity funds, do not protect you from a big bear market. And remember, if you do dollar cost average in, if you're coming from basically mostly fixed income, and you've decided because you like the kind of diversification that we're advocating that you want to use some equities in your portfolio and you're doing it kind of for the first time, I do think it makes sense to dollar cost average in. And and, and I know this is the problem. I'm a market timer. So I, 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 I look at who you are emotionally and I think, oh my God, if, if, if he goes all in right now because he thinks that owning, let's say, those 10 funds or those four funds uh, are going to be good to him, uh, he might run right into a normal market decline that could take 30%, 30% of the value away. But even if you do dollar cost average in over, let's say, 12 months or 24 months or 36 months, even if you do dollar cost average, remember that the day you get done dollar cost averaging in, the market can still fall 30%. So it, it, it never, dollar cost average never protects you against that ultimate decline that you're likely to have. So what that means is, as long as you have built that portfolio for the right amount 
of fixed income so that you are addressing the downside. And when you create that 50-50 or 60-40 or 40-60, just know that the day that you start the portfolio can be a, a negative, a, a declining market that lives up to your expectations, except you were hoping it was later than happening right now. Number 11, I currently hold a large amount of cash and I want to start investing. Do you recommend to buy ETFs right now in one large lump sum investment or dollar cost average over a few months? Now, I understand this question is very similar to the other dollar cost averaging question, but uh, I, I, I just want to show you how, how meaningful these words become when we get a question like this. So, uh, this, I currently hold a large amount of cash and I want to start investing. Now, there's an implication that this could be a first-time investor who has just inherited a bunch of cash, uh, or it could be that somebody has uh, gotten a rollover from a 401k uh, retirement account. And, and so I don't know what that relationship is with the money. I do think this, that uh, if this is a person who is, is, has gotten a large amount of money they now want to put to work, I highly recommend they take a look at our fine-tuning your asset allocation table. And the reason that's important is because uh, those tables and what they are uh, are the results one year at a time since 1970 through 2022 for one of the equity strategies, whether it's the worldwide 10 strategy or the four strategy or the all value strategy. In every case, the table will show the year by year results of that strategy, that portfolio. But then it matches it up with different amounts of fixed income so that, that you can see, okay, uh, if I take this aggressive equity strategy for half of my money and the other half I put into uh, a combination of basically short-term kinds and intermediate-term bonds, what would the return have been and what would have uh, what would the result have been in terms of exposure to risk? Because at some point along the way, you're going to lose in the equity portion somewhere between 30 and 50% of the value of your portfolio. Uh, that happened three times during the period 2000 to 2009. So, so that, that's something you have to deal with. And so to the extent that you have first determined what your asset allocation would be, I think would have some impact on whether you lump sum or you dollar cost average in. And, and it may be you're only going to have 20% in equities. I know people that have done that because it does make uh, a, an important difference in the long-term return. But this is both a question of 
of, of how much risk you're willing to take. Uh, and, and if you really want to be defensive, and I'm a great believer in being defensive all the way, I do like the idea for somebody who's not been through this before to dollar cost average in. Now, I, I, I would make a note here about where you're going to invest. When you're working with ETFs, if this is the first time, when you work with ETFs, in most places, most brokerage firms, you cannot buy partial shares of the best-in-class ETFs, which means this, that if you're going to make a purchase of $1,000, and if the shares are, are $95 each, and you want to buy one each of 10 different ETFs, you're not going to be able to buy exactly $1,000 or $100 in each. But when you do it through Fidelity, they allow partial share purchases so that if you wanted to have $100 uh, each in 10 different ETFs, you will get as many shares as it will buy plus up to the $100, a partial share. It makes it really easy to rebalance. It makes it easy to make the purchase and, uh, and gives you more control, fewer, fewer uh, computations to figure out uh, how to make whatever move that you're going to make. But again, we've got to remember that anytime we dollar cost average in, that at the end of that period of the dollar cost average, you still got that cliff out there waiting for you to fall over at, at some point along the way. Number 12, do you think the Avantis All Equity Markets Fund, and by the way, the ticker for that fund is A-V as in Victor, G-E as in Edward, but, but do you think that that fund is tilted sufficiently to small and value, or does its large and growth wash out its small and value premium? Now, let me just tell you about this fund briefly. Uh, this fund is built to have exposure to growth and value, uh, not only in, in the large cap and the small cap, but mid-cap as well, both in the U.S. and international. So you have a worldwide fund that is a balance. It is tilted to, to value, but it is not tilted as far as a portfolio that we would say, for example, the four-fund worldwide strategy uh, would give you more exposure uh, to value uh, than this uh all equity market fund. Now, it, it isn't that it's, that it's a bad tilt, but I do believe that you'll probably make, let me, let me, it's not a guess, but looking at the percentage in large and small and value and growth, etc., cetera, uh, at least a half a percent difference uh, in the compound rate of return. And so that then begs the, uh, the question, uh, how much how much bother do you have to go through? Because certainly it is easy to just put your money into one fund and nothing left to do. 
But I will tell you that if you are concerned about the the process of rebalancing and maintaining that yourself, with four funds, it isn't very difficult. And as long as you're in a tax-deferred environment, there are no tax implications you have to be worried about. But I would say, particularly uh, if you're a younger investor and you're not in retirement, uh, that if you waited for two, three, or four years to rebalance. You do not have to rebalance uh, every year. Uh, In fact, uh, that's one of the studies that I know Daryl has on his to-do list, is to look at the implications of risk and return based on how often uh, you rebalance. So that was number 12. Let's look at number 13. Do you think that a Vonta small cap value fund is going to produce similar returns as the DFA small cap value ETF? Now, the, the, they're both relatively new. Avantis several years old, but uh, a DFA does not have a long history. They're new to the market, but managing small cap value uh, is something they're one of the uh, early uh, in advisors and managers of that asset class, and uh, and that is due to the work of Dr. Fama and Dr. French, who who uh, were famous for having developed the research on on looking at the the implications of small and value uh, in a in a portfolio now. It's easy for me to tell you the difference in return this year. And as a matter of fact, uh, the Avantis Fund uh, has produced a slightly higher return um, than the uh, uh, the DFA Fund. But uh, last year, there was an advantage to the DFA Fund. So, so it's too soon to tell. What we can look at is we can look at the uh, the factors uh, in those funds that would have an impact on the long-term return. And they're very similar. The, uh, the size uh, for the uh, AVUV is about $2.5 billion, and the, the size of the average uh, DFSV, the D- Dimensional Small Cap Value ETF, about $2.7 billion. So, DFA, just a little bit bigger, not significant, I don't think. Uh, the book-to-market uh, relationship, uh, the the DFA has a little bit of an advantage there. Again, I don't think it's hugely impactful of the re- on the return. Uh, where they are different is that uh, the AVUV, the Avantis Fund, is, is uh, they're much higher quality small cap value companies. And that is a factor that many believe, in fact, it's been tested in in, in the past, that small cap value is more productive if you have the higher quality uh, small cap value stocks than if you're holding the lesser quality, uh, financial quality uh, stocks. And keep in mind, that the people who um, started Avantis several years ago, um, almost all of them came from DFA. And so I suspect uh, 
that those returns are going to be uh, a very similar. Uh, number 14, uh, do you ever recommend buying individual bonds instead of bond funds? Well, briefly, bond funds give you diversification that most individual bond investors are not going to get. That's, that's the, the first thing. The, the second thing is bond funds are really easy to use when you're using them as a part of a portfolio that you are periodically rebalancing. Because uh, with mutual funds, uh, you, you can go in and, 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 and call the dollar amount that you want to trade rather than specific bonds. Uh, also, the, the people who manage bond funds have a lot of money to work with and uh, get better pricing typically than the individual does. Also, with bond funds, if you want to do tax loss harvesting, that is really much simpler, lower cost uh, than doing it with individual bonds. Remembering that when you buy and sell a bond fund, I'm talking about an open-end bond fund, you are, whether you're a buyer or a seller, the transaction at the close of the day is the same price, regardless of whether you're a buyer or a seller. What that means is you've eliminated the spread, and sometimes the spread for small numbers of bonds can be a more expensive uh, uh, spread, or, or what, what we call the, the wholesale markup in the industry, uh, and so you can eliminate that spread if you use the bond fund. Of course, we're recommending uh, no-load bond funds, and, and, and most of the bond funds that I have owned over the years uh, have either been at DFA or uh, at, uh, at Vanguard. Number 15, uh, your opinion on changing target date fund to past actual retirement date to keep the percentage of bonds lower. Uh, that is certainly one way that you can uh, maintain a more aggressive equity posture is to uh, tell Vanguard, for example, that you want to be in the target date fund that is further out, which implies that you would have uh, a more equity in your portfolio. Another way you can do this uh, is you can actually add equity yourself. You could, uh, and I know it takes a little work, but uh, you can simply uh, add a, a position in the S&P 500, for example, uh, and that would, that would reduce the exposure to bonds in your portfolio. So there are a couple of ways you can manage that. And um, I wouldn't want you to forget about the possibility that you could add some small cap value to the portfolio. Uh, that would not only reduce your, your, your bond exposure, uh, but it would also uh, theoretically, based on the past, uh, give you a better long-term return uh, for the whole portfolio. Number 16, is there a chance that Avantis Investments would be closed down. And if that happens for some reason, what would happen to our money 
invested in their funds. Well, first, let me just uh, address the, uh, the Avantis funds and the likelihood of them closing down a fund. Typically, funds are closed when they don't attract uh, enough money. Uh, one of the reasons I uh, really am, am confident that Avantis is going to be a long-term winner, partly because they are being, uh, in essence, underwritten and, 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 and under the umbrella of the 20th century fund family. So there are, in that regard, deep pockets. But more importantly, I think, is that uh, there is a big following of uh, the uh, of the Avantis funds, just as there's a big following of the dimensional funds for professionals. So there is a lot of money uh, going into the Avantis funds that is that is not the money of the retail investor, but of the uh, of the of the uh, professional managers, uh, registered investment advisors like. Uh, my old firm, Maryland Wealth Management Company, uh, they will use, they do use Avantis, and they do use a DFA uh, ETFs. I, I have them, we have them in our own portfolio because uh, the, because the Merriman folks uh, manage our money. So so I I believe from from everything that I know about how this business works in terms of of maintaining the size that you need that Avantis is going to be in great shape. Uh, I think they already have some almost $30 billion under management in a, in a relatively uh, short period of time. They, they are building a great following. Now, having said that, uh, I think it would be worthwhile um, reading an article from one of the folks that I consider to be a truth teller uh, although I notice they're not, don't think they're on our list, but they are and will be on our list. The Balance is the website. But they have an article, What Happens When an ETF Closes Its Door? And so we will have a link to that uh, in the notes. But I don't want to dodge the question entirely. Uh, there is an opportunity you will know that the ETF is going to close and there is an opportunity uh, to get out uh, uh, prior to the point at which, in essence, they they, they, they liquidate everything uh, or it gets merged into some other, uh, other fund. Number 17, it, it's a toughie. It, it is a difficult one, this one is. Uh, when... It is not a good idea to dump VBR uh, and buy best-in-class AVUV in a taxable account. What this this question? I, I can understand where it's coming from. Somebody uh, has owned VBR, a Vanguard small cap fund, uh, and it has on our list uh, in the best-in-class. Uh, we we have chosen AVUV, and what are the tax implications? That's where it all starts. Uh, what we do know, looking backwards over the last three years, for example, 
His VBR has compounded at 17.8%, while AVUV has compounded at 27.3%. So we know what we one might have wished they had done in the past, uh, but it's important to understand why that difference in return. The average size in VBR, the size of the company, is uh, is about five billion, as opposed to the average size of the company uh, at uh, AVUV is about half of that. So that's an advantage over a very long period of time to AVUV. With uh, VBR, uh, the price to book ratio. Uh, is about a 1.5, whereas uh, with uh, the AVUV, it's about 1.2. In other words, AVUV is smaller on average, the company size, and more deeply discounted. Now, let me prepare you for what the ride will likely be like. In the long run, during periods when large companies and growth companies are the big winners, you're, there's going to be a tendency for larger small cap value companies to do better than smaller small cap value companies. This went on for years, and it made it look like it was better to be in, in the larger small cap value uh, uh, mutual funds or ETFs. But over a long period of time, uh, there should be a distinct advantage to AVUV over VBR. So that becomes then a question of how many years do you expect to own uh, these particular funds or ETFs? At my almost 80, I'm thinking it's probably a a 10-year hold. On the other hand, if somebody who's 60 might be holding this for the next 20 or 30 years, in which case I would I would seriously consider the tax implications, but I'm not allowed to give tax advice. Number 18. What is your opinion of holding target date funds or a fund of funds during retirement? Well, it's very simple. I talked earlier on this uh, podcast about the balanced funds at, uh, uh, at Vanguard, and a target date fund is simply another form of balanced fund. The, the distinction with the target date fund is as you get older, Vanguard or whoever's managing the target date fund is going to be probably adding uh, more uh, uh, more fixed income to the portfolio. And from about 70 on, uh, this is just from memory as I think of their glide path, from about 70 on, uh, they are 30% uh, in equity. If you were in the BlackRock uh, target date fund, you would be 40% uh, in equity. So there are differences between these these target date funds. But 
you may have the risk tolerance of having having more equity in your portfolio. My wife and I, while we don't have a balanced fund, we have a balanced portfolio that's 50-50 stocks and bonds. And so, as I mentioned in the earlier question about the uh, using Vanguard Wellesley or Wellington or some combination or using the Vanguard Tax Managed Fund, which is a 50-50 strategy, or they have the 60-40 Balanced Indexed Fund. Uh, yes, I think, I think that the, the uh, balanced funds are, are great. They, they do not give you the ability to, to fine-tune your tax loss harvesting. Because everything is buried under uh, under that portfolio, and you, you you're going to report what that portfolio does. And this is one of the complaints of a target date fund: is that you, you've handed over all of the decisions that you might make uh, to somebody else, and it makes it less tax efficient. But if you're under the umbrella of an IRA, Roth, 401k, whatever, I think the balanced fund is a great way to go. And of course, that's what our fine tuning tables are all about, is to give people some ideas about how they might create balance, whether you look for a balance fund to do that for you, uh, or, or you build your own balanced fund. Number 19. This is a, uh, a value versus growth question. And the, the, the question is, what is the range for the P-E ratio for growth and value. And the source of that information for us uh, is uh, Morningstar. And so you can uh, uh, go in and look uh, under the uh, link to portfolio at every mutual fund, which means I can go to the Vanguard large cap growth fund. Uh, and uh, which they call the Vanguard Growth Fund. Uh, and I can see that the uh, P.E. ratio uh, f- for, for that fund is uh, 29.7 versus the value fund of 14.5. Large value, 14.5. Large growth, 29.7. So people are paying twice uh, for the... Uh, in terms of the price-earnings ratio for growth. And that's the way it works. The experts contend that the higher the P.E. ratio, and by the way, that simply means that a lot of people want to own those companies, the lower the expected long-term returns. And that may sound counterintuitive, but what happens is, in the earlier years of that great growth, the P.E. ratio goes very, very high. That's not unusual. And then over time, as the company grows, matures, that P.E. ratio comes down at the same time as the earnings likely continue to grow. Uh, but it is rare, and you can see this if you go back 50 years and look at the really great growth companies that over time their prices actually uh, returns were not much better than the S&P 500 and maybe not even as good as the S&P 500. Now, when we look at small companies, 
uh, that uh, is 24.5 for small growth versus 12.1 for small value. Again, there's another example of uh, the, the, that difference of almost uh, twice uh, the P.E. ratio for small growth over small value. Now, there is a, is a different, a very different story historically. Small growth companies, uh, according to the studies that go back to, to the earliest days, uh, well, let's say that go back 50 to 80 years, etc., uh, those small growth companies do not have great long-term returns. Small value uh, actually does have a very fine premium, but not small growth. And I think it's worth noting that the same thing is found uh, internationally. Uh, I, I noticed that uh, the, the the price earnings for uh, international large cap value at about 8.4, and the, the PE uh, for the large cap international value about 12.7, not twice as much. But it is important to note that PE ratios in the international markets uh, are lower uh, than in the U.S. market. And finally, the final, number 20. Um, this question is about uh, the need for an advisor. And the question says, I feel I need a specialist. And they're talking about uh, an investment advisor, I believe. Uh, but do the fees override the use of an advisor? Now, this is the difficult part for you to measure. You can look at any fund. And you could say, I could buy that fund, and it got a 10% return over the last 30 years, and I would have gotten the 10%. But if I hired an advisor, and he or she put me into that fund, that I would have gotten 10%, but they would have taken a fee, let's just say 1%, a year to help me be in that fund. Well, why would I want to do that? And in fact, in the studies that we show young people is that if you can eliminate that 1% fee for the rest of your life, it is a multi-million dollar payoff. But what we don't know is how we are going to respond. Uh, as Bogle and Buffett and, and virtually all of the uh, of the professional uh, uh, authors and and managers would say, emotions and expenses, those are the things that take people down over the long term, particularly if you're diversified. But if you can't maintain the commitment without the help of a professional, then you, you can't even know what your return is going to be. Dalbar does a study every year, and it shows that the underperformance for people on their own is 2-3% a year over a long, a long period of time, and that's because people are, are second-guessing. In fact, uh, the, the famous study by Wharton that looked at 1.2 million 
clients of, of Vanguard who are 401k clients and looked at people who did it themselves versus people who put it under professional management in a target date fund. That's what you get. You're paying in that fund for professional management, not 1%, but you are paying for it. The studies show that those people who put all their money under professional management had an expected rate of return of 2.3% more per year. So everything points to me for people who either don't know what they're doing or find emotional challenges, even if they understand the process, they find dealing with their own money difficult to do. They probably need help. But, but let me assure you that if you're going to work with a good professional advisor, uh, they're going to have a list of all the things that an advisor should do. They can't control the market. They hopefully can control you. And I'm going to get, uh, and, 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 and this is not me recommending the Merriman Wealth Management Company, but they once sent me a, a list of uh, all the things they're supposed to be doing for a client. It is way beyond just making you enough money to pay for that 1% or whatever that fee might be. So uh, I, I hope, I hope you are the kind of person who can set and forget a portfolio because there is a huge payoff for doing that if you don't have to pay somebody else to do it. And then what a good advisor should do, if you're, if you're paying somebody 1% a year and they're putting you in actively managed funds, I would fire them in a nanosecond. Because, because that just there's no evidence that's what is in your best interest. And a good advisor is supposed to do everything that is in your best interest. But as you may know, there are many people who are licensed without the responsibility to do what's in your best interest. So it's then a, a matter of finding the right financial advisor that is going to do the right thing and take care of this list. And uh, I'll, I'll see if I can get that list and I'll have a link to that so you'll know what you should get out of any advisor. And by the way, this isn't just the, the Merriman Company that does this. This is what every good advisor should be doing for somebody that they're charging 1% a year or whatever the fee is. Some people charge more than that. Some people charge less. Thank you. This is a long one. I, I, I hope it's helpful. Uh, I'm asking Margie if she will timestamp these so that if you only want to look at my response to one of them, you can go right to it. Uh, I will hope that she has the time to do that before we have to mail it out on, uh, uh, send it out on Wednesday. But thank you. Uh, for joining me. I, I, hope, I hope you do find something in here that uh, uh, will uh, give you another uh, fork in the road that you've conquered, and, uh, and I hope you keep coming back and, and, sh and, and listening and asking, by the way. Uh, obviously, we do respond <laughs> to your question. Oh, and by the way, if you do win that $1.5 billion lottery drawing, I hope you will consider giving a few dollars 
to our foundation. Thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.